Welcome to Literary Hangover. I'm your host, Matt Lick. With me is Alex Guns. Hello. Uh, we are back today discussing The Sotweed Factor, or A Voyage to Maryland, a Satire, by Ebenezer Cook Gentleman, published in 1708. This is from a bookregs.com, which I actually... Have you been on bookregs? Yeah, I. Uh, you pointed it out earlier, and I was on it for... Um... This one and Pilgrim's Progress. A lot of good resources on that. I've never even heard of it. If you're a student uh, in English, uh, taking any English classes, uh, particularly an English major, you should. I would invest in that uh, a subscription there because there's a lot of good uh, secondary sources and summaries and discussions on it. But anyway, um, it also includes uh, sources such as the uh, Dictionary of Literary Biography. And uh, I'll read from that uh, their entrance on Ebenezer Cook. Ebenezer Cook is the best American writer of satire before Benjamin Franklin. And even Franklin, it is arguable, did not produce any single piece better than The Sotweed Factor in 1708. In this poem, and in the history of Colonel Nathaniel Bacon's rebellion in Virginia, both composed in the hudibrastic verse form popularized by Samuel Butler, Cook initiated a tradition of Southern humor that eventually spawned Mark Twain and William Faulkner, and that remains vitally alive today. His portraits of what he called the, quote, planting rabble of Maryland, his deflation of the contradictory American dreams of pastoral innocence and unlimited economic advancement, and his irreverent handling and comic mythologizing of history are also very much in the mainstream of American literary traditions and entitle him to more careful critical attention than he has hitherto received. Little is known of Cook's life, the son of Andrew and Anne Bower Cook. He was born in London sometime around 1667 and first came to Maryland around 1694, when his signature appears on a remonstrance against the removal of the capital from St. Mary's City to Annapolis. That's actually mentioned in the poem. Mm -hmm. um, he appears to have returned to London around 1700 and again sometime before 1708, the year the Sotweed Factor was published, perhaps remaining long enough to probate his father's will on uh, 2 January 1712. He is next mentioned in public records on 30 October 1717 when he is sold to his cousin Edward Cook on a tract of land called Malden that he had inherited from his father. It, there's a bit of an Afro-Ben vibe here. That like the documentation gets is still shaky on mm -hmm. um, you know lives of even moderately public individuals. Whether he was in London or Maryland at this time is impossible to establish. But he turns up. Well, we're going to skip ahead. Oh, yeah, he turns up uh, again in Maryland records as a deputy of Henry Lowe the uh, second, a receiver general of the province in 1720. And for the next several years, he seems to have supported himself as a land agent for Lowe. Lowe's brother, and John Gresham. He was also admitted to the bar of Prince George's County and seems to have been practicing law intermittently since at least September 1700, which is interesting because he uh, makes fun of Chesapeake area lawyers in this. And he was appointed the true and lawful attorney of Edward Ebbett Citizen. After 1722, Cook's name virtually disappears from public records and his existence can be traced only through his poems, which also provide clues that he had fallen on hard times and was sorely in need of money. His last poem, an elegy commemorating Benedict Leonard Calvert, was written in 1732, and the poet would have, when the poet would have been in his mid-60s, and it is probable that he died shortly thereafter. Yeah, and just a little bit more, uh, Cook's best poem is The Sotweed Factor, 
Uh, a complexly ironic work that burlesques the foolish expectations of Englishmen who come to America anticipating a new Eden and a land of unbounded economic opportunity. Penniless and friendless in England, the sotweed factor, or tobacco merchant, sails from Maryland, intending to get rich quickly. After a tempestuous sea journey, he arrives in the province and encounters a gallery of rogues and scoundrels who eventually cheat him of the goods he has brought and send him raging back to England, leaving behind a dreadful curse upon a land where no man's faithful nor a woman chaste. It's probably the most probably the most complex poem that we've ever done so far. We haven't done a, a whole lot of poetry, but... I would say a fair amount, probably more than any literary podcast. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, the cliche is that for prose, um, prose is the exact right sentence in the exact right place, and poetry is the exact right word in the exact right place. And I think that's apropos of this of the sawweed factor and that it's there's multiple points of view being expressed uh, in any couplet. And then to it's kind of made like for podcasting almost or made for discussion where it's like any 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 verse couplet you can unpack and it has multiple points of view buried into it which makes it very very interesting especially when you consider that it's like talking about a very new emerging colonial system and this person's giving giving it a, a, a rather uh impressive identity yeah i thought it's just fascinating as an artifact um, yeah and that's my primary interest in it and then i come to find that it is I would say more, um, well, first, aesthetically, there's more clangers in this than I think any poem we've read, more than Bradstreet or more than Longfellow yes. that come to mind. Like, there are some lines that are just embarrassed. Like, like, I wouldn't have turned those in in undergrad creative writing classes. Well, yeah, and, the, and we should also say the difference is also this, this poem might be the first poem that we cover that has no apprehensions of being high art, mm -hmm. that this is like a body poem. This is a poem that's actually made for memory, which is the theory currently is where like poetry may come from the idea of memorizing like rote memorizing long forms of information, right. but like I'm uh, reading it and then listening to your recording of it. There are certain like phrases, almost like a cycle that can turn around in my head. Uh, like I think I was, I was walking through central park while listening <laughs> to your recording being like, it kind of could get into the rhythm of my step with yeah. uh, your reading of it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you had some, uh, we should talk about Hudibras and the Hudibrastic form of poetry and satire. Um, what do you have to say about that? Yeah, so the last, what was it? Um, it was Hiawatha. For, for Hiawatha, we talked about um, verse and meter. And so verse and meter definitely is a way of def defining what this poem is going to be about. And so just as like a, a, a refresh for the, the reader, an I am is like a short syllable followed by a long syllable. Um, an example would be above, above. Um, and then a way of ordering that is then how many I am's you put on a line and a line is um, a, a meter. So for, so hubristic or hudibristic, uh, which is a very, a very rare type of poetry is iambic uh, tetrameter, which is, uh, lines with four iams, so four short and long words, basically. Not not necessarily, but that like if if you can make that motion with your mouth, that essentially is what uh, you have to have four of those iams. Um, so not not just that, but also Cook writes in uh, hudibristic couplet, and a couplet we haven't discussed yet. A couplet is just two successive lines that rhyme, uh, and they have to have the same meter. So it's almost like 
I don't know how to describe it. It's almost like you read two lines. It's almost like it circles back on itself where it, it goes da, 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 da. And it, it has a lyrical quality almost to it. And if you, I'm sure we'll play your, your recording of it and you can, you can really feel that it's almost like it just has this, uh, beautiful natural, uh, pace. And we keep making this reference to, uh, uh, hudibristic and that comes from Samuel Butler's satirical, po- uh, poem, uh, Hudibris from 1663, which we've covered the 17th century quite extensively now. And so that poem was published uh, in many parts over many periods of time, but it was first published about four years after the um, the abolishment of the British Republic and the restoration of the monarchy. The poem is an epic that tells the story of uh, Sir Hudibris, who is a knight errant who is described dramatically and with laudatory praise that is so thickly applied as to be absurd, mm-hmm. uh, which is going to be um, a trope that's going to be uh, explored in this poem. And this kind of idea of like a knight that's kind of full of himself or, or, or someone who's like, you, you give so much praise to them that it's like, oh, this is ridiculous, is almost you would say like a genre now uh, for poetry in this moment. And Samuel Butler was inspired by uh, the famous novel now Don Quixote as this kind of fool genius idiot who is like going on his own mission. Yeah, I'll just read uh, a bit from Hudibras so people can get the idea of this sort of uh, satire. Um, This is talking about uh, the knight. Uh, for his religion, it was fit to match his learning to his wit. Twas Presbyterian true blue, for he was of that stubborn crew of errant saints whom all men grant to be the true church militant, such as do build their faith upon the holy text of pike and gun, decide all controversies by their infallible artillery, and prove their doctrine orthodox by apostolic blows and knocks. So yeah, there there you go. Um. It, and it reminded me of uh, also in that sort of heroic couplet form. Yeah. Uh, uh, Alexander Pope's The Dunciad, which is uh, 20 years after this. Yeah. Um, and much uh, sort of, this is, I was surprised by how dense this was. You know, before I said there was a lot of clangers in here, more than Bradstreet or, or Longfellow. It's also, I think... Uh, maybe not Bradstreet. Bradstreet's was politically dense and interesting. A lot of like yeah. embedded politics and yeah. messages in there. Calls to like ancient history and, and yeah. Where this this kind of like it wears ancient history like a jacket. Like yeah, puts it on and be like, look how cool I look. Uh, maybe we should just start into the poem a little bit. Uh, I recorded this because there isn't a LibriVox, so the community is failing in that regard. There, come on, guys. <laughs> Um, I'm going to monetize this too. I'm not going to upload it to LibriVox for a while. Um, <laughs> <laughs> to teach the community a lesson, surely. Exactly. But you can, if anybody else wants to upload it there, be my guest. Actually, before we get to the poem, I want to put it in context using one of my favorite histories uh, on the subject. Uh, one of my favorite histories of all time. Uh, the Many-Headed Hydra, Sailors, Slaves, Commoners, and the Hidden History of the Revolutionary Atlantic by Peter Leinbaugh and Marcus Redeker. I've already um, cited it in other episodes or or read from it. Um, But this part, I want to put it into, you know, what, uh, where's the proletariat coming from? Because this this has a, as as we sort of uh, mentioned, the Sotweed factor, this guy, he comes to America from London. 
and he wants to do some deals in tobacco. Uh, and he eventually like gets frustrated in, in that way. And who are the people? And, it, and it's all about like how this new class of Americans um, is differentiated from the European Englanders, um, basically. And by the way, the Many-Headed Hydra is available online, the full PDF. Uh, I recommend you downloaded it if you don't want to buy it. Um, it's on, uh, I think, Libcom. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll uh, link it in the, in the description. Quote uh, Linbaugh and Redeker. The early Chesapeake tobacco proletariat consisted of Nougatiers, Quakers, renegades, sailors, soldiers, nonconformists, servants, and slaves. So different than New England. Um, mainly a lot more different types of people, not all, you know, Puritans, basically. Not people looking that had some sort of like new world zeal to like to have a rebirth of, of the natural moral order. These people are here to make money. Yes, exactly. Yeah, a lot, lot more uh, explicit about that as opposed to, you know, uh, dressing it up in the Bible. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, in 1662, the House of Burgesses erected whipping posts and granted masters the legal right to beat their servants. Complaining of the audacious unruliness of many stubborn and incorrigible servants resisting their masters and overseers, they promised beatings and extra service to anyone who laid violent hands on his or her master, mistress, or overseer. Summarizing the rising tensions of Virginia's eastern shore, Douglas Deal writes that, quote, physical violence, verbal abuse, work slowdowns, sabotage, and running away by servants all became much more common after the 1660s. Running away by servants will be alluded to in this poem. As in Barbados, servants and slaves often ran away together, prompting repressive, deliberately divisive legislation in 1661 and 1662 that made the servant responsible for the time that the slave was away from his master. In 1664, Maryland's rulers passed an act against English women who were, quote, forgetful of their free condition and to disgrace of the nation do intermarry with Negro slaves by which also diverse suits may arise, touching the issue of such women and a great damage doth befall the masters. Virginia's big men worried in 1672 that servants would, quote, fly forth and join, end quote, with slaves in maroon communities. The House of Burgesses banned the entry of Quakers into the colony, called for the imprisonment of those already there, and forbade their meetings and publications. George Wilson, a former soldier in the New Model Army, who in early 1662 was chained to a post with an Indian in a stinking prison in Jamestown, denounced the cruelty and oppression of, quote, company of lazy and lewd people who not caring to work uh, feed upon the sweet and the sweat and labor of others. Uh, Wilson organized interracial gatherings at which women preached heretical doctrine. The big planters attacked interracial cooperation except where it was necessary for their production of tobacco. Um, and these are the sort of uh, tensions that would lead to Bacon's rebellion, which we'll get to in future episodes. Um, um, so yeah, this is where this Sot Weed Factor is going to uh, to make his name. And I, I just want to put this uh, thought in there right away is we don't really get right off the bat. He tells why he tells us that he leaves England for the colonies, but we don't really know why. Yeah. And it's I, ambiguous. And I think that's, there's something it's worthwhile being suspicious of yeah. uh, that here. Uh, but anyway, uh, we will start with the reading, uh, my own reading. Now I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to put a little bit of uh reverb on this uh, just to, 
make it, my own voice sound more tolerable to myself and because I have the ability on the soundboard, so I'm going to do it. I, I, will, I will say, just, just it just came to me now, but a, a good um, uh, episode to go with this is to listen to our previous one on um, the Barbarous Years. Mm. We talk a lot about um, like early colonial history, and there's a lot of background that I think that this poem touches on really well. Like Just talking about like people coming over here for not so <laughs> great means or like the, the, the best of intentions. Right, yeah. The Sotweed Factor or A Voyage to Maryland, a satire by Ebenezer Cook. Condemned by fate to wayward curse Of friends unkind and empty purse Plagues worse than filled Pandora's box I took my leave of Albion's rocks With heavy heart concerned that I was forced my native soil to fly And the old world must bid goodbye But heaven ordained it should be so And to repine is vain we know Freighted with fools from Plymouth sound To Maryland our ship was bound where we arrived in dreadful pain, shocked by the terrors of the main. For full three months our wavering boat did through the surly ocean float, and furious storms and threatening blasts both tore our sails and sprung our masts. Wearied yet pleased we did escape such ills, we anchored at the cape, but wane soon we plowed the bay to cove it in Piscato way. Intending there to open store, I put myself and goods ashore, where soon repaired a numerous crew in shirts and drawers of scotch cloth blue, with neither stockings, hat, nor shoe. These, it's interesting to me how, um, focused on, uh, clothing a lot of this cologne, like clothing is such an important political signifier. Yeah. Like if is if a white person is wearing Native American clothing or Indian clothing, it's a huge statement. And if an Indian is wearing colonist clothing, it's a huge political statement. Uh, uh, English person notes that everyone's wearing sort of like this Scotch linen blue clothing, um, which is it's there's some I don't know I I haven't seen this represented in paintings or something like that. I'd be curious what that act actually looked like what yeah the, a mass of americans all wearing sort of like cheap linen clothing looked like to an english person yeah and now we get to sort of a, the racial othering of the americans uh he goes right in for that and uh when we talk about that i want to bring in uh the work of sarah ford this is a humor's role in imagining america ebenezer cooks the sotweed factor by sarah ford she brings up uh, Benedict Anderson, uh, of, um, who wrote a book called Imagined Communities about Nationalism. And it's, I think, super interesting. And uh, I think this book, uh, well, Sarah Ford writes here. In this essay, I will investigate humor's role in the process of imagining America as a community separate from the motherland of Britain. Humorous writings in general and Cook's poem in particular have received little attention related to their role in the process of nationalism. Their move is not admittedly the bold declaration of a, quote, city on a hill, end quote, set apart from England. But the humor works by subtly separating British from colonists, outsiders from insiders. As the factor insults the colonists, he distances himself from them, thus taking on the role of an outsider. In the dual satire, the colonists become insiders who perceive the humor in the, fo in the factor's inability to adapt to American life. The humor of the poem forms an imagined American community by uniting colonists who get the new world jokes. 
The factor's train of associations is humorous, and the English audience would laugh at the portrayal of the barbarous colonists. But the reason the factor may, may be working so hard to pose the planters as the other is because they are not so different. They are mostly of English descent, although the factor's shifting descriptions would not suggest kinship. In using the various negative associations of class, race, and religion to describe the colonists, the factor is in effect imagining the colonists as a separate community. Benedict Anderson, in examining the spread of nationalism in the 18th century, describes the modern nation as, quote, imagined community. The community is imagined because although its members will never meet each other, quote, in the minds of each lives the image of their communion. When Ebenezer Cook was writing the Sotweed Factor around 1700, America was still, of course, a colony. But before the colonists could revolt and form a political nation, they had to first be seen as a separate entity. So yeah, let's just uh, let's listen to uh, him describe the racial difference of the Americans versus him as an Englishman. Were soon repaired a numerous crew in shirts and drawers of Scotch cloth blue, with neither stockings, hat, nor shoe. These sotweed planters crowd the shore, in hue as tawny as a moor. Figures so strange no god designed to be a part of humane kind, but wanton nature, void of rest, molded the brittle clay in jest. At last a fancy very odd took me, this was the land of Nod, planted at first when vagrant Cain his brother had unjustly slain, then conscious of the crime he'd done, from vengeance dire he hither run, and in a hut supinely dwelt the first in furs and sotweed dealt, and ever since his time the place has harbored a detested race, who when they could not live at home, for refuge to these worlds did roam, in hopes by flight they might prevent the devil and his fell intent, obtained from triple tree reprieve, and heaven and hell alike deceive, but ere their manners I display, I think it fit I open lay, my entertainment by the way, that strangers well may be aware on what homely diet they must fare on. Um, just a little literary note real quick that the, the narrator describing uh, these people as descendants of Cain and also they were in the land of Nod, the, the, the full Genesis, the, it's from Genesis and the full line is, the land of Nod that is east of Eden, which for all our literary heads out there, one of the great American books is pulled from that. And I, at East of Eden by Steinbeck, and I can't help but feel that maybe he pulled that illusion possibly from this poem that, and, and Nod is like a, a play on words in Hebrew for wanderer. Mm -hmm. And I think that what this poem is trying to suggest and then what Steinbeck will pick up on and not just him, but hundreds of American writers is that uh, this is a country of wanderers, of kind of nomads or people with no uh, uh, ties that are keeping them down but constantly moving. And I think that this poem is, you could almost say this poem could be like patient zero, at least for like uh, in literary terms for, for that kind of idea. Yeah. Uh, it, the Cain thing, the Cain myth is also interesting in how he's trying to racially otherize Americans here. Yeah. Uh, because uh, if you read Ibram Kendi's Stamped from the Beginning, The History of Racist Ideas, I don't know if that's the actual subtitle, but it's close enough. Um, that was one of the ways, like rehearsing those sorts of narratives of uh, 
uh, was how before you know scientific racism how you justified enslaving people mm -hmm. uh, and then like later on it's you know skull measurements and things like that but before that it was they tried IQ to go test. to the Bible right like, yeah uh, and these people these are the descendants of Cain uh, and this isn't the last we'll hear of sort of like racial theories uh, uh, oh yeah being discussed in the, by the Sotweed factor so oh but I, I also want to read this little part here uh, talking about why there might be some tension between the Americans and the English this is from uh, Gregory A. Carey's The Poem as Con Game Dual Satire and the Three Levels of Narrative in Ebenezer Cook's The Sotweed Factor it opens this way the late 17th and early 18th century was a time of heavy trade between England and her American colonies, and much of this trade was focused on the highly profitable tobacco crop which was grown in America and then sold by English merchants throughout the world. While such a situation might appear to be equally profitable for both parties, in actuality it was not. A series of trade restrictions imposed by the English government and a prohibition on the use of any type of currency in the American colonies favored English merchants who earned a larger share of the profits and perhaps contributed to the colonists' financial dependence on England. These limitations produced a tense trade relationship between the colonists and English merchants that was expressed by both groups in tales about their business dealings. Uh, J.A. Leo LeMay states that prior to the first publication of the Sotweed Factor in 1708, stories about deceptive colonists cheating inexperienced English merchants were common in both English and American circles. The Maryland poet Ebenezer Cook, who had experience with his father's tobacco business, was quite was probably quite familiar with these tales of trickery and the real-life con games that inspired them. Uh, so we'll continue here with the reading. That strangers well may be aware on what homely diet they must fare on. To touch the shore where no good sense is found, but conversations lost and manners drowned, I crossed unto the other side, a river whose impetuous tide the savage brothers does divide. In such a shiny odd invention, I scarce can give its due dimension. The Indians call this watery wagon canoe, a vessel none can brag on. Cut from a popular tree or pine, and fashioned like a trough for swine. In this most noble fishing boat, I boldly put myself afloat. Standing erect, with legs stretched wide, we paddled to the other side. Where being landed safe... So that's uh, maybe the first physical joke uh, in the in the text that also kind of contributes to that uh, imagined community of the American reader of this text. So, like, who would know what a canoe is and would know that you do not stand it with your legs stretched wide? Yeah. Uh, and so this is, uh, you know, the explicitly this is a. Uh, which is this is a this is makes it more ironic than Hudibras because. The uh, the speaker of the poem is the butt of the joke, actually. Yes. Um, sorry. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, we'll just continue there. Odd invention. I scarce can give its due dimension. The Indians call this watery wagon canoe, a vessel none can brag on. Cut from a popular tree or pine, and fashioned like a trough for swine. In this most noble fishing boat... I boldly put myself afloat, standing erect with legs stretched wide. We paddled to the other side, where being landed safe by hap, as soul fell into Thetis' lap, a ravenous gang bent on the straw, 
of wolves for prey began to howl. This put me in a panic fright, lest I should be devoured quite. But as I there amusing stood, and quite benighted in a wood, a female voice pierced through my ears, crying, You rogue, drive home the steers. I listened to the tractive sound, and straight a herd of cattle found, drove by a youth and homeward bound. Cheered with the fight, I straight thought fit, to ask where I a bed might get. The surly peasant bid me stay, and asked from whom I'd run away. Surprised at such a saucy word, I instantly lugged out my sword. So yeah, let's dive into these lines here. Uh, he sees, uh, a, I think it's a mother maybe with her son uh, who's driving cattle. Uh, he asks if he can stay with them. And the peasant says, the surly peasant bid me stay and asked from whom I'd run away. Uh, surprised at such a saucy word, I instantly lugged out my sword. So he's offended that he thinks that he's run away from a master. Mm -hmm. First of all, he came on a boat full of people that were in that position, it seems like. Yeah. And apparently he gives the appearance of someone who may be in that position himself. So yeah. the, the, he could be lying here, like conning everybody in the poem, saying I'm actually this bit, a bit, very important businessman from England. But you, why did you come here in such shoddy uh, you know, circumstances then? Yeah, and, and confidence men and, and trickery is like is the key theme in this poem. So it would make sense that our, our hero is, is participating in, in uh, that process. Yeah, and uh, we'll just go back to the, the colonies, specifically, you know, the Chesapeake area, was filled with people who were, you know, bonded in, in, certain, in different sorts of bondage yep. as England privatized their commons and had to do something with all the people they were kicking off the lands, basically. Well, remember, we, I mean, we talked about the, the massive amount of, ch of child deportation that was going on in England because they were like, we can't keep them in the, uh, these poor houses. We're like, essentially just send them to the colonies. Yeah. Here's more from uh, The Many-Headed Hydra. I'm going to read a significant portion here. If the prison house of correction and gallows expressed one aspect of capitalism in England, military adventure, colonization, and plantation expressed another around the Atlantic. When Sir Humphrey Gilbert established the first English colony uh, in the New World in Newfoundland in 1583, the chronicler of the settlement compared it to the military adventures of Joshua, who conquered, quote, strange nations, uh, took their lands, and divided them among God's people and kept the vanquished at hand to, quote, to hew the wood and carry water. Gilbert's hewers and drawers included not only, quote, savages, but also his own countrymen, those men, women, and children who had lived idly at home and might now be set to work in America, mining, manufacturing, farming, fishing, and especially felling trees, hewing and sawing them, and such like work meet for those persons that are no men of art and science." Both Gilbert and Richard Hacklett, the main propagandist for English exploration and settlement, saw an advantage in England's late entry into the European scramble for the New World colonies. The expropriations that coincided with colonization meant that England, unlike Portugal, Spain, the Netherlands, or France, had a huge and desperate population that could, that could be redeployed overseas. Um, I'm going to skip over a few sections of this um, about how they, you know, they banished the Irish, the Gypsies, and the Africans. But I, I want to include this part about Queen Elizabeth's view of Africans. Um, oh God! 
Queen Elizabeth, who in 1596 sent an open letter to the Lord Mayor of London and to the mayors and sheriffs of other towns. Uh, this is what she, she wrote. Quote, Her Majesty understanding that several blackamoors have lately been brought into this realm, of which kind of people there are already too many here. Her Majesty's pleasure, therefore, is that those kind of people should be expelled from the land. Uh, in the same year, she engaged a German slave dealer to confiscate black people in England in return for English prisoners of war. In 1601, she proclaimed herself, quote, highly, dis highly discontented to understand the great number of and it's spelled N-E-G-A-R-S, Negars and Blackamoors, which are crept into this realm. So yeah, that's the Queen That's Queen Elizabeth the first for you. Um, so she's canceled. Uh, so yeah, she's probably already canceled, but just to <laughs> just stay canceled. <laughs> People will be like, she was actually pretty like, you know, progressive. It's like, no, nah, she's got she was a girl nail boss. in the coffin. <laughs> she was a girl boss who leaned in. She's an epic boss. Um, another part of the terror was forced labor overseas, a different kind of, quote, going west. Uh, through the transatlantic institution of indentured servants, of indentured servitude, Merchants and their, quote, spirits, that is, abductors of children and adults, shipped some 200,000 workers, which is two-thirds of all those who left England, Scotland, and Ireland, uh, to, America, uh, to American shores in the 17th century. Some had been convicted of crimes and sentenced to penal servitude. Others were kidnapped or spirited, while yet others went by choice, often desperate choice, engaging in exchanging several years' labor for the prospect of land and independence afterward. During the first half of the 17th century, labor market entrepreneurs plucked up the poor and dispossessed in the port cities, London and Bristol especially, and to a lesser extent Liverpool, uh, Liverpool, Dublin, and Cork, and sent them initially to Virginia, where the practices and customs of indentured servitude originated. In order to entice settlers to and secure labor for the infant colony, the investors of the Virginia Company of London fashioned a covenant between the company and the workers. Imperial and local rulers of other colonies, most notably Barbados, adapted the new institution to their own labor needs. Indentured servitude, Eric Williams has remarked, was the, quote, historic base upon which American slavery was founded. Uh, just one more here. Uh, Prisoners of various kinds, including the ship's hold, the tender boat, the hulk, the crimp house, the press room, the cook house in London, the barracoon, the storehouse, the factory in the Gold Coast, the trunk, the cage, or the city jail were, as Scott Christensen has shown, indispensable to the various Atlantic slave trades, whether the prisoners were sailors, children, or felons, whether they were from Africa or from Europe. Many indentured servants, Thomas Verney explained in 1642, came from the bridewells and the prisons. Sir Joshua Child claimed that, quote, a major part of the women servants were taken from Bridewell, Turnbull Street, and such like places of education. It was a time when jails were emptied, youths youth seduced, infamous women drilled in. According to a pamphlet of 1632, the plantations they were destined for were, quote, no better than common sinks where the commonwealth dumped her most lawless inhabitants. Virginia's servants were said to have no habitations and can bring neither certificate of their conformity nor ability and are better out than within the kingdom. And Maryland's were, quote, for the most part the scum of the people taken up promiscuously as vagrant and runaways from their English masters, see, runaways from their English masters, debauched, idle, lazy squanders, jailbirds, and the like. John Donne, the poet, 
uh, promised in a sermon of 1622 that the Virginia Company, quote, shall sweep your streets and wash your doors from idle persons and the children of idle persons and employ them. And truly, if the whole country were such a bridewell to force idle persons to work, it had a good use. He wanted America to function as a prison, and for many it did. So, yeah, John Donne also canceled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Guess what? The, the poet of feelings and sentimentality. Turns out, <laughs> kind of a piece of shit. Also, the poet of the uh, the prison industrial complex. Like, the space between him and Newt Gingrich's 2012 uh, presidential <laughs> platform uh, is zero. It's, yeah. a, it's a Venn diagram of a single circle. So, just imagine that. It's crazy that that was England's advantage was in uh, colonizing the new world was that it uh, privatized all of the land yeah, and first. created a whole bunch of people uh, that needed a way to subsist and couldn't do it from, you know, nature. Yeah. Uh, and privatize the commons. Oh, we have you go colonize America for us. And the way that they're, they were, like John Dunn, everyone, we're sending them over there to work. They're idle here, right? Yeah. And we wonder why we think you need to like actually do a job to receive health care. I mean, I was going to say that like, <laughs> that, that reading of like, of describing different peoples that are coming over here. We have one part like religious fanatics that are like, we're going to start the whole world over and then we'll probably destroy the world if we have the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Then people are like literally just people who have been displaced and are thrown over here. The people who are like, I served my time, my four years of indentured servitude. Yeah. So why the fuck should I pay for fat people's health care? Yeah, basically. basically. And then just people who are literally forced over through slavery. It's like if you mix yeah. that up and like you could just open it up, you just put in a time capsule, open up 2019 today and like, oh, here we are. <laughs> All right, we'll continue. I straight thought fit to ask where I a bed might get. The surly peasant bid me stay, and asked from whom I'd run away. Surprised at such a saucy word, I instantly lugged out my sword, swearing I was no fugitive, but from Great Britain did arrive, in hopes I better there might thrive. So the idea that this is all about searching for opportunity we know is wrong, because the very first lines uh, of the poem are... Condemned by fate to wayward curse of friends and kind and empty purse. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he's not just, I'm just looking for new opportunities, you know, yeah. in between. That's like me um, before I got hired at Vice, like after college. <laughs> yeah. It's like me in every interview being like, you know, I loved my previous job. Yeah. So like I've obviously been fired for a long time. Mildly <laughs> <laughs> made rep- out my sword, swearing I was no fugitive, but from Great Britain did arrive in hopes I better there might thrive. To which he mildly made reply, I beg your pardon, sir, that I should talk to you unmannerly, but if you might please to go with me, to yonder house you'll welcome be. Encountering soon the smoky seat, the planter old did thus me greet. Whether you come from jail or college, you're welcome to my certain knowledge, and if you please I'll not- I love that the guy, the old, the old planter says, whether you come from jail or college. <laughs> so it's like, okay, yeah, you... You've just come for the opportunities. Yeah. Hinting that, yeah, you, you've escaped prison or escaped some sort of situation. Maybe. Well, that doesn't matter here also. Uh-huh. I think it's something that's important to note. That yes. Yeah, it's yeah. not just that it's like, they're not just negating it. Or it's not that they're, they're ignorant of college. They don't give a shit. Right. That all those skills of like, you know, aesthetics, a theory or, or like you know, abstract concepts, that's not of any use on the frontier. 
frontier is about how wily you are. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe maybe it's a different one by Cook, but I think he goes back in on college book learning later on, but we'll see. Mm-hmm. The planter old did thus me greet. Whether you come from jail or college, you're welcome to my certain knowledge. And if you please all night to stay, my son shall put you in the way, which offer I most kindly took, and for a seat did round me look. When pleasantly among the rest, he placed his unknown English guest, who found them drinking for a wet, a cask of cider on the fret, till supper came upon the table, on which I fed whilst I was able. So after hearty entertainment, of drinking victuals without payment, for planters' tables, you must know, are free for all that come and go, while pawn and milk, and mush well stored, in wooden dishes graced the board, with hominay and cider pap, which scarce a hungry dog would lap, well stuffed with fat and bacon fried, or with molasses dulcified, then out our landlord pulls a pouch as greasy. So yeah, he makes fun of their food a little bit, um, but also mentions that it's you know free. Yeah. Um, very uh, the egalitarianness is coming through, like right, like this is sort of what de Tocqueville would talk about um, a little bit, maybe. Nah, I don't know. If no, I would say that a bit. If you were talking about, like, de Tocqueville's, like, kind of was, like, one of his, he's, you know, wrote extensively in adage, but one of one of his, like, adages is that they have no philosophy, they have, they've learned no philosophy, but they live it all, mm. which is, like, it's all intrinsic. It's in, it's in the way that we interact with each other as uh, Americans or colonialists. It's, it's like, it's, it's all uh, implicit in the interaction rather than, like, in the discourse. So I think it's it's there, like in the food, being like it's a new code of living, but it's not very, it's not necessarily very analytical. Yeah, not exactly Anthony Bourdain. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I want to warn people a line coming up here that I need to edit for the um, the recording of this poem that I put out for patrons. Uh, you'll notice a line comes up, and I'm going to re-record the correct line, and everyone listening to the podcast will hear it. But when I recorded this, I was using a copy that took this line out. Uh, it's the line that rhymes with, uh, in length, scarce longer than one's finger. So, uh, we're going to play that and then I'll tell you what the line is. That was censored. Come and go. While pawn and milk and mush well stored in wooden dishes graced the board. With hominay and cider pap, which scarce a hungry dog would lap. Well stuffed with fat and bacon fried or with molasses dulcified. Then out our landlord pulls a pouch, as greasy as the leather couch on which he sat and straight begun to load with weed his Indian gun, in length scarce longer than one's finger. His pipe smoked out with all... All right, so yeah, um, the the version I was reading from just took out, which is tough in couplets, because you recognize, well, where's the the thing that's supposed to rhyme with finger? But uh, here it is. Then out our landlord pulls a pouch, as greasy as the leather couch, on which he sat and straight begun, to load with weeds his Indian gun, in length scarce longer than one's finger, or that for which the ladies linger. Not bad. Pretty scandalous, huh? Dick joke. Yeah. (laughs) Because ladies linger for, Yeah. you know, that thing as long as this pipe. (laughs) penis jokes they're all over like the last 500 years of literature at least 
Oh, I, I think mean, even more than that. I think remember, all of them. They like found that like what the hell was it? it was a little bit ago, or I mean, you know, a couple decades ago. They found this kind of like amphitheater, this Grecian amphitheater that had been lost, and they like it was played. It was in the Olympic. It was in the original Olympic games. Like this is incredible, and they yeah. they found like I, I, like a bathhouse or something like that, and all it was filled with ancient graffiti, and all the graffiti was like you know uh, um, Xerxes has an amazing cock. Like yeah. it was all just like I want to I want to fuck this guy. It was in, it was the most insane like like ludicrous stuff, and it was all about like sex basically. Yeah, like the equivalent of like Calvin decals in the back of trucks. <laughs> yeah, basically. Greeks, yeah, just love it. Um, yeah, I think there was like some other ancient civilization that like we translated some texts and they had jokes. It's like the oldest jokes known to man and they're like... Yeah. Actually, I want to read those. We'll just take a sleep detour. Let me search those. Um, <laughs> okay, it is a saying of the Sumerians who lived in what is now southern Iraq and it goes... Something which has never occurred since time immemorial. A young woman did not fart in her husband's lap. <laughs> uh, it's funny and true. It is true. Yeah. To load with weed his Indian gun. In length scarce longer than one's finger. His pipe smoked out with... Or that for which the ladies linger, sorry. On which he sat and straight begun. To load with weed his Indian gun. In length scarce longer than one's finger, his pipe smoked out with awful grace, with aspect grave and solemn pace. The reverend sire walks to a chest, of all his furniture the best, closely confined within a room, which seldom felt the weight of broom. From thence he lugs a keg of rum, and nodding to me thus begun, I find, says he, you don't much care, for this our Indian country fare. But let me tell you, friend of mine, you may be glad of it in time, though your stomach is so fine. And if within this land you stay, you'll find it true what I do say. This said, the rundlet up he threw, and bending backwards strongly drew. I plucked as stoutly for my part, although it made me sick at heart. Now, so here we have two. We have that the dick joke, that for which the ladies linger. And then here, you know, he, alcohol plays a big part of this poem. And he is just as comfortable taking big poles of liquor as the Americans are. This said, the rundlet up he threw and bending backwards strongly drew. I plucked as stoutly for my part, although it made me sick at heart. So he might have some sort of like alcoholism or something that... Although it made me sick at heart, you don't know, is he like lamenting being beneath him in terms of class mm -hmm. by taking alcohol or maybe he has some sort of alcoholism. But uh, anyway, although it made me sick at heart and got so soon into my head, I scarcely could find my way to bed where I was instantly conveyed by one who passed for chambermaid, though by her loose and sluttish dress, she rather seemed a bedlam bess. Curious to know from whence she came, I pressed her to declare her name. She, blushing, seemed to hide her eyes, and thus in civil terms replies, In better times ere to this land, I was unhappily trepanned. Perchance as well I did appear as any lord or lady here, not then a slave for twice two year. Preoccupation with servitude. 
I mean, it it does seem like this was basically all you talk about. So how long do you have to serve for before you get your own land? And then as people graduate out of their, in, uh, um, you know, terms, they want land themselves. And then that, be, and, you know, where do you get the land from? Well, the Indians. Mm-hmm. Fashionably new, nor were my shifts of linen blue. But things are changed now at the hoe. I daily work and barefoot go. In weeding corn or feeding swine, I spend my melancholy time. Kidnapped and fooled, I hither fled to shun a hated nuptial bed. And to my cost already find worse plagues than those I left behind. Whatever the wanderer did profess, good faith I could not choose but guess the cause which brought her to this place was supping ere the priest laid grace. Quick as my thoughts, the slave was fled, her candle left to show my bed, which made of feathers soft and good, close in the chimney corner stood. I threw me down expecting rest, to be in golden slumbers blessed. But soon a noise disturbed my quiet, and plagued me with nocturnal riot, a puss which in the ashes lay, with grunting pig began a fray, and prudent dog that feuds might cease, most strongly barked to keep the peace. This quarrel scarcely was decided by stick that ready lay provided, but Reynard, arch and cunning loon, broke into my apartment soon, in hot pursuit of ducks and geese, with fell intent the same to seize, their cackling plaints with strange surprise, chased sleep's thick vapors from my eyes raging i jumped upon the floor and like the drunken sailor swore with sword i fiercely laid about and soon dispersed the feathered rout the poultry out of window flew and reynard cautiously withdrew the dogs who this encounter heard fiercely themselves to aid me reared and to the place of combat run exactly as the field was won Fretting as hot as roasting capon, and greasy as a flitch of bacon, I to the orchard did repair, to breathe the cool and open air, expecting there the rising day, extended on a bank I lay. But fortune here that fancy whore, disturbed me worse and plagued me more, than she had done the night before. Horse croaking frogs did bout me ring, such peals the dead to life would bring, a noise that might move their wooden king. I stuffed my ears with cotton white, for fear of being deaf outright, and cursed the melancholy night. But soon my vows I did recant, and hearing as a blessing grant, when a confounded rattlesnake with hissing made my heart to ache. This extended uh, animal section reminds me of, like, Ace Ventura when nature calls or something like that. <laughs> like, just... I feel like that's the lineage of this. You someplace foreign, and you all the animals play a you know part in the cast. Yeah, like there's almost like enough animals to humans ratio. That's like that's what you're gonna run into. It's like a person, person, snake, cattle. Knowing how to fly the foe, or whither in the dark to go, by strange good luck I took a tree prepared by night to set me free, where riding on a limb astride. Night and the branches did me hide, and I the devil and snake defied. Not yet from plagues exempted quite, the cursed mosquitoes did me bite, till rising morn and blushing day drove both my fears and ills away, and from night's airs set me free, discharged from hospitable tree. I did to planter's booth repair, and there at breakfast nobly fare, 
on rasher broiled of infant bear. I thought the cub delicious meat, which ne'er did aught but chestnuts eat. Nor was young Orson's flesh the worse, because he sucked a pagan nurse. Our breakfast done, my landlord stout, handed a glass of rum about. Pleased with the treatment I did find, I took my leave of Ost so kind, who to oblige me did provide his eldest son to be my guide, and lent me horses of his own, a skittish colt and aged roan, the four-legged prop of his wife Joan. Steering our barks in trot or pace, we sailed directly for the place in Maryland of high renown, known by the name of Battletown. To view the crowds did their resort, which justice made and law their sport, in that sacacious county court. Scarce had we entered on the way, which through thick woods and marshes lay, but Indians strange did soon appear, in hot pursuit of wounded deer. No mortal creature can express his wild fantastic air and dress. His painted skin in colors dyed, his sable hair in satchel tied, showed savages not free from pride, his tawny thighs and bosom bare, disdained a useless coat to wear, scorned summer's heat and winter's air. His manly shoulders, such as please widows and wives, were bathed in grease, of cub and bear whose supple oil prepared his limbs against heat or toil. Thus naked picked in battle fought, or undisguised his mistress sought, and knowing well his wear was good, refused to screen it with a hood. His visage done, and chin that ne'er did razor feel or scissors bear. So we have this description of this Indian, and... It, it, it dwells very heavily on the superficial physiognomy and clothing, uh, and then goes right to sort of sexual paranoia um, yeah. that she's coming for your wives. Yep. Um, and then we get a dick joke. Uh, and knowing well his wear was good, refused to screen it with a hood. There you go. Guys, no. That was like, I mean... You could, you would walk 18 miles to hear a dick joke like that. Back in the <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can put another point on the scoreboard for um, uh, ye old entertainment. It would be uh, rocking chair, uh, looking at the stars, and walking a, a good way to find a good dick joke. And chin that ne'er did razor feel or scissors bear, or knew the ornament of hair. Looked sternly grim, surprised with fear. I spurned my horse as he grew near. But Roan, who better knew than I the little cause I had to fly, seemed by his solemn steps and pace, resolved I should the specter face, nor faster moved, though spurred and licked, than Balaam's ass by prophet kicked. Kekeknetop, the heathen cried. How is it, Tom? my friend replied. Judging from thence, now this is actually I think really great satire. Um so they he, the Englishman sees this Native American coming and he's like, "Oh crap, I need to get my horse to like get me the f out of here." And the horse doesn't respond at all. Uh because frankly the horse is more comfortable in the society than he is. Uh and they and so they get closer and closer and the heathen the Indian says, "Kakiknatop." And then the American that he's with, the, the poet is with, says, how is it, Tom? And <laughs> my friend replied, and then judging from thence, the brute was civil. I boldly faced the courteous devil. Like, it's, it's, 
there, there you see um, some more of the uh, like going native, right? Like that. Mm-hmm. That's this is that. Uh, you're so concerned that basically these Americans are becoming another race. You see one, and it's like you can't really even communicate with him. You have to. You see other people talking to him. Look at this American can just converse with a Native American. Yeah. Uh, very, I think, uh, interesting thing to put, include in a satire. There's something. It's kind of like from like the English person's or like the, the cultured person's perspective that the only thing that matters in, in, in like this new American context is being able to read this specific situation and then move on and then adapt. And then you like become a different person in like the different situation that like it requires basically that it's like, there is no, <laughs> there is no first principles basically mm-hmm. in, in this like American colonial setup that it's, it's instinctual. It's something it's closer. It's almost like a, like I don't know how to describe it. This like this poem. This poem almost suggests it's like a return to nature, a return to like a more abstract way of living. It's very essentializing. Yeah, in a way where it's like we can't really, you can't define it. It's just you either know or you don't know. It's like you're in or you're out. And this like poem does a beautiful way of both being like, like describing how odd that is, and also being like, and we're on the inside of that. And it's also the sort of thing where it's like you basically see all these versions of what it's like to be out. Yeah. And that by uh, by sort of like transference or or something makes you feel in um, somehow. Like the, I'm learning how to become an insider or something. Yeah, like that. especially if you're reading this as an American at the time. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think the author reminded me the most of actually was my first literary love, uh, Mark Twain. Mm. That it, I feel like whether he read it or not, this poem by Mark Twain took that idea like with his like first book, Innocence Abroad, and he. You know, he went to like the the great wonders of the world and scoffed at it, both seeming like a fool, but also being like, yeah, but we know that I'm a fool. So that's why it's funny. Mm-hmm. And like Europeans and people from the Middle East, they don't know that they're fools. And that's why they're like the real butt of the joke. There's something very similar to that in mm-hmm. these transactions that are happening in this poem. Licked, then Balaam's ass by prophet kicked. Kick the top, the heathen cried. How is it, Tom? My friend replied, judging from thence the brute was civil, I boldly faced the courteous devil, and lugging out a dram of rum, I gave it his tawny worship some. Also, alcohol is a medium of communication with Native Americans. Mm -hmm. Who in his language, as I guess, my guide informing me no less, implored the devil me to bless. I thanked him for his good intent, and forwards on my journey went, discoursing as along I rode, whether this race was framed by God, or whether... Sorry, just to dwell on that, I think there's some um, irony here that people might... I just want to slow down upon, but... uh, And lugging out a dram of rum, I gave his tawny worship some... Tawny, the word that just English people just love describing native Americans as tawny. I gave his tawny worship some who in his language, as I guess my guide informing me, no less implored the devil me to bless. And then he says, I thanked him for his good intent and forwards on my journey went. I think the intent there could not be, could be seen as maybe not good, particularly since he said the devil. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the Englishman assumes that he worships the devil. So he thinks it's like, good tidings but actually he's damning him yeah yeah (laughs) i thanked him for his good intent and forwards on my journey went discoursing as along i rode whether this race was framed by god or whether some malignant power 
contrived them in an evil hour, and from his own infernal look their dusky form and image took. From hence we fell to argument, whence peopled was the continent. My friend supposed Tartanians wild, or Chinese from their homes exiled, wandering through mountains hid with snow, and rills did in the valleys flow far to the south of Mexico, broke through the bars which nature cast, and wide unbeaten regions passed, till near those streams the humane deluge rolled, which sparkling shined with glittering sands of gold, and fetched Pizarro from the Iberian shore to rob the natives of their fatal store. Now, before the poet gives his own version of where the, how the Native Americans got to America, we should point out that that was basically it. Like, that's pretty much correct. They came from China, Eurasia, a number of different migrations mm-hmm. uh, over like tens of thousands of years ago. I smiled to hear my young logician thus reason like a politician, who ne'er by father's pains and earning. This is, is that a political correctness dig? Seem this young logician thus reason like a politician. Like it's politically correct to say they came from China. I don't know. I'm not sure exactly know, yeah. what that. I smiled to hear my young logician thus reason like a politician, who ne'er by father's pains and earning had got at mother Cambridge learning, where lubber youth just free from birch most stoutly drink to prop the church, nor with grey coat had taken pains to purge his head and cleanse his reins and in obedience to the college, had pleased himself with carnal knowledge. And though I liked the younger's wit, I judged the truth he had not hit, and could not choose but smile to think what they could do for meat and drink. What o'er so many deserts ran with brats and wives in caravan, unless perchance they got the trick to eat no more than porker sick, or could with well-contented moss quartered like bears upon their paws. Thinking his reasons to confute, I gravely thus commenced dispute, and urged that though a Chinese host might penetrate this Indian coast, yet this was certainly most true. They never could the isle subdue, for knowing not to steer a boat, they could not on the ocean float, or plant their sunburnt colonies in regions parted by the seas. I thence inferred Phoenicians old, discovered first with vessels bold these western shores, and planted here, returning once or twice a year, with naval stores and lasses kind, to comfort those were left behind, till by the winds and tempest tore from their intended golden shore, they shuffered shipwrecked or were drowned, and lost the world so newly found. But after long and learned contention, we so the poet's uh, prediction or surmise is that uh, Indians descended from Phoenicians who yeah. had colonized it earlier and then basically forgot about it. Now, I think Chinese people developed like different kinds of boat technology throughout like the long uh, history of that continent. Oh, absolutely. Right. Like, yeah. um, I think there's maybe different reasons they didn't go across the Pacific Ocean yeah. uh, with boats. Then just it wasn't essential to their like you know race, um, but what this sort of academic discussion of where the Native Americans came from? It's one, it's important for any society that's dispossessing those people to like try to f- come to grips with who they're dispossessing and what their claim to it is, and if their claim is just like their earlier versions of colonists, 
then uh, then it's not so bad. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to go back to Sarah Ford. In arguing here for a Phoenician origin to the Indians, the factor indicates his idea that colonists can deviate so far from their colonizers to become essentially a different race. While he previously described the Indians as inhuman, he sees the Phoenicians quite differently when he explains in his footnote, uh, quote, the Phoenicians were, the, yeah, this is from the footnote uh, by Cook. The Phoenicians were the best and boldest sailors of antiquity, and indeed the only persons in former ages who durst venture themselves on the main sea. The Phoenicians were courageous persons, but their later descendants in the New World are devils, a monumental separation that has somehow occurred. That the story of a colony could be a model for a separation between the British and their colonists is indicated by the factor's suggestion throughout the poem that the colonists have become Indian. They are an other and a separate community because they have gone native. These suggestions surface through the factor's use of humor as he tries to insult the colonists. Uh, so yeah, the, the Phoenicians basically were the ancient I- Englishmen uh, who mastered the ocean waves and what's well, an interesting reading also on race and that it's not in this poem it's not intrinsic as it will be later on that's a, a good point that it's something that's gained through being in a certain area for a certain amount of time yeah it, it is actually it's not essentializing it's it's historically contingent yeah um yeah. it's like in that sense like this the these settlers and colonists are actually just like rough drafts of what will like of native americans essentially yeah not finish our dissension and when that both had or were drowned and lost the world so newly found but after long and learned contention we could not finish our dissension and when that both had talked their fill we had the self-same notion still thus parson grave well read and sage does in dispute with priest engage the one protests they are not wise who judge by sense and trust their eyes and vows he'd burn for it at stake, that man may God his maker make. The other smiles at his religion, and vows he's but a learned widgeon. And when they have emptied all their store from books or fathers, are not more convinced or wiser than before. Scarce had we finished serious story, but I espied the town before me, and roaring planters on the ground, drinking of heaths in circle round, dismounting steed with friendly guide, our horses to a tree we tied, and forwards passed among the rout, to choose convenient quarters out. But being none were to be found, we sat like others on the ground, carousing punch in open air, to crier did the court declare, the planting rabble being met, their drunken worships likewise set. Crier proclaims that noise should cease, and straight the lawyers broke the peace. Wrangling for plaintiff and defendant, I thought they ne'er would make an end. So basically we have an early version of Annapolis, which is like a, a DC sort of swamp type situation mm-hmm. where you have all these lawyers that are drunkards. Uh, Swindlers. You know, you know, yeah, trying to scam each other, basically. Yeah. On the ground, carousing punch in open air to crow. Oh. And when this was reprinted, uh, the uh, the publisher was careful to write that this was describing Annapolis 20 years ago. 
<laughs> so don't you know think it's full of uh, liars and cheats and corrupt uh, public officials anymore. Also a very American trope, which is like, this happened in the ancient past, yeah. 20 years ago, well, which has no bearing on today. Everyone makes huge apologies like that, too. Like how this, like Hawthorne had to do that a few times. Yeah. Like I'm not actually talking about anyone specific, even though clearly he is. Yeah, it just happens to take place in the exact area with the exact characters in which the situation took place. Yeah. Nothing to do with it, though. The court declare, the planting rabble being met, their drunken worships likewise set. Cryer proclaims that noise should cease, and straight the lawyers broke the peace. Wrangling for plaintiff and defendant, I thought they ne'er would make an end it. With nonsense stuff and false quotations, with brazen lies and allegations, and in the splitting of the cause, they used much motions with their paws, and showed their zeal was strongly bent in blows to end the argument. A reverend judge, who to the shame of all the bench could write his name, at Pettifogger took offense, and wondered at his impudence. My neighbor Dash with scorn replies, and in the face of justice lies, the bench in fury straight divide, and scribbles take, or judges side, the jury lawyers and their clients, contending fight like earth-born giants. But Sheriff Wiley lay Purdue, hoping indictments would ensue, and when a hat or wig fell in the way, he seized them for the queen as stray. The court adjourned in usual manner in battle blood and fractious clamor. I thought it proper to provide a lodging for myself and guide. So to our inn we marched away, which at a little distance lay, where all things were in such confusion, I thought the world at its conclusion— a herd of planters on the ground, o'erwhelmed with punch, dead drunk we found. Others were fighting and contending. Some burnt their clothes to save the mending. A few whose heads by frequent use could better bear the potent juice gravely debated state affairs. And now this is one of the favorite things for writers to make fun of is the sort of peasants talking about politics. Yep. The ones that could... Well, what's the line? Um, a few whose heads by frequent use could better bear the potent juice gravely debated state affairs whilst I most nimbly tripped upstairs. Yeah, it's like drunk history. Um, <laughs> whilst I most nimbly tripped upstairs, leaving my friend discoursing oddly and mixing things profane and godly. Just then beginning to be drunk, as from the company I slunk, to every room and nook I crept, in hopes I might have somewhere slept. But all the bedding was possessed by one or other drunken guest, but after looking long about, I found an ancient corn loft out, glad that I might in quiet sleep and there my bones unfractured keep. I laid me down secure from fray, and soundly snored till break of day. When waking fresh, I sat upright, and found my shoes were vanished quite. Hat, wig, and stockings all were fled from his extended Indian bed. The mention of hat, wig, and stocking is significant because earlier he mentions uh, that his are different than the clothes that the American would wear. Mm -hmm. So this isn't theft. It's Well, it's theft, but it's not theft to use. It's theft because they don't like this guy. Yeah. Vexed at the loss of goods and chattel, I swore I'd give the rascal battle who'd had abused me in this fort, and merchant stranger made his sport. 
I furiously descended ladder. No hair in March was ever madder. In vain I searched for my apparel, and did with host and servants quarrel, for one whose mind did such aspire to mischief threw them in the fire. Equipped with neither hat nor shoe, I did my coming hither rue, and doubtful thought what I should do. Then looking round I saw my friend lie naked on a table's end, a sight so dismal to behold, one would have judged him dead and cold, when ringing of his bloody nose, by fighting got we may suppose, I found him not so fast asleep, might give his friends a cause to weep. Rise, Orinoco, rise, said I, and from this hell and bedlam fly. Now, uh, literary hangover listeners will, of course, recognize the word Orinoco uh, as the name of the protagonist of the Afro-Ben uh, work, which the, and they take it from the same source, which is the Orinoco River. Uh, yeah, the Orinoco River in, uh, in uh, Venezuela and Colombia, and uh, Ebenezer Cook gives uh, his own footnote to that. Planters are usually called by the name of Orinoco uh, from their planting Orinoco tobacco, so it's tobacco from uh, South America. Fast asleep might give his friends a cause to weep. Rise, Orinoco, rise, said I, and from this hell and bedlam fly. My guide starts up, and in amaze, with bloodshot eyes did round him gaze. At length, with many sigh and groan, he went in search of aged Roan, but Roan, though seldom used to falter, had fairly this time slipped his halter, and not content all night to stay tied up from fodder, ran away. After my guide to catch him ran, and so I lost both horse and man which disappointment, though so great, did only mirth and jest create, to one more civil than the rest, in conversation for the best, observing that for want of roan, I should be left to walk alone. Most readily did me entreat to take a bottle at his seat, a favor at that time so great, I blessed my kind propitious fate, and finding soon a fresh supply of clothes from storehouse kept hard by, I mounted straight on such a steed, did rather curb than whipping need, and straining at the usual rate, with spur of punch which lay in pate, ere long we lighted at the gate. Where in an ancient cedar house dwelt my new friend, a cockerouse. That just means sort of a great man. Uh, this is for uh, um, a man of quality, as Cook puts in the footnotes of punch which lay in pate ere long we lighted at the gate where in an ancient cedar house dwelt my new friend a cockerouse whose fabric though twas built of wood had many springs and winters stood when sturdy oaks and lofty pines were leveled with musmillion vines and plants eradicated were by hurricanes into the air there were good punch and apple juice we spent our hours without abuse till midnight in her sable vest persuaded gods and men to rest and with a pleasing kind surprise indulged soft slumbers to my eyes fierce aton courser of the sun had half his race exactly run and breathed on me a fiery ray darting hot beams the following day when snug in a blanket white i lay but heat and chintzes raised the sinner most opportunely to his dinner wild fowl and fish delicious meats 
as good as Neptune's doxy eats, began our hospitable treat. Fat venison followed in the rear, and turkey's wild, luxurious cheer. But what the feast did most commend was hearty welcome from my friend, thus having made a noble feast, and eat as well as pampered pre- So yeah, we have eating and then more drinking. But what the feast did most commend was hearty welcome from my friend, thus having made a noble feast, and eat as well as pampered priest. Madeira strong in flowing bowls, filled with extreme delight our souls, till wearied with a purple flood of generous wine, the giant's blood, as poets feign, away I made for some refreshing verdant shade, where musing on my ramble strange, and fortune which so oft did change, in midst of various contemplations of fancies odd and meditations, I slumbered long till hazy night with noxious dews did sleep's unwholesome fetters lose, with vapors chilled and misty air to fireside I did repair, near which a jolly female crew were deep engaged in Lancherlue. Now, Lancherlue is a card game, uh, and uh, he gives that away soon or first, but he goes into why he thought it was a witch's uh, coven meeting. With vapors chilled and misty air, to fireside I did repair, near which a jolly female crew were deep engaged in Lancherlue, in night rails white with dirty mien. Such sights are scarce in England seen. I thought them first some witches bent on black designs in dire covenant to one who with affected air had nicely learned to curse and swear, cried dealings lost is but a flam, and vowed by God she'd keep her pam. When dealing through the board had run, they asked me kindly to make one, not saying often to be bid, I sat me down as others did. We scarcely had played a roundabout, but these Indian froes fell out. He uses Indian as an insult there, uh, so he... They play cards and sort of argue about it. He gets dealt in, and then they have a fight. A fight breaks out. And uh, just just to make a point on this, that this this game is is a trick based card game, which I don't know how many card players we have uh, as listeners, but a trick based card game is one where it's not necessarily based on like skill or or, um, or strategy. Like it's like hearts or euchre, if there's any mm. euchre players there. Where so it, I think it really um, elucidates the themes of this that it's really based on trickery. Like even the one the the dealer who's ostensibly in charge of the game can have hidden cards that can have hidden meanings or, or sorry or like hidden powers that you're not aware of. So I think that this idea that this narrator or this character sitting down to play this game where all of them have powers that are clandestine and have ways to get the upper hand through uh, clandestine means is, is very uh, uh, good. And he, and immediately ties it to witchcraft. Yeah, um, of course. Yeah, that would be the English response. Yeah. Like as soon as someone gets the upper hand, we're like, well, this must be the work of the devil. Yeah, particularly, particularly if they're women. Um, not saying often to be bid, I sat me down as others did. We scarcely had played a roundabout, but these Indian froes fell out. Damn you, says one, though now so brave, I knew you late a four-year slave. 
What if for planter's wife you go, nature designed you for the hoe? Rot you, replies the other straight, the captain kissed you for his freight. And if the truth was known aright, and how you'd walked the streets by night, you'd blush if one could blush for shame, who from Bridewell or Newgate came. From where? Bridewell and Newgate are prisons uh, like that uh, England emptied into America. How you'd walked the streets by night, you'd blush if one could blush for shame, who from Bridewell or Newgate came. From words, they fairly fell to blows, and being loath to interpose, or meddle in the wars of punk, away to bed in haste I slunk. Waking next day, with aching head, and thirst that made me quit my bed, I rigged myself and soon got up, to cool my liver with a cup of succahana fresh and clear, not half so good as English beer, which ready stood in kitchen pail, and was in fact but Adam's ale. So he goes to drink Sakahana, which is water, and there's more beer in there. This is like Floribama Shore, where just every episode they're just getting wasted. Liver with a cup of Sakahana, fresh and clear, not half so good as English beer, which ready stood in kitchen pail, and was in fact but Adam's ale. For planter sellers, you must know, seldom with good October flow, but Perry Kints and apple juice. Spot from the tap like any sluice, until the casks grown low and stale, they forced again to gowd and pale. The soothing draught scarce down my throat, enough to put a ship afloat. With cockerus as I was sitting, I felt a fever intermitting. A fiery pulse beat in my veins, from cold I felt resembling pains. This cursed seasoning, I remember, lasted from March to cold December. Nor would it then its quarter. Uh, so a couple of things. One, when he says they're forced again to goud and pale, goud is when uh, uh, a goud grows upon an Indian vine resembling a bottle when ripe is hollow. Uh, this the planters used of to drink the water out of. So yeah, you have to use this bit of a vine to drink out of. Um, also, I think this part is a description. If I'm reading this right, a description of a hangover. Yeah veins from cold i felt resembling pains this cursed seasoning i remember lasted from march to cold december nor would it then its quarters shift until by cardus turned adrift and had my doctors wanted skill or kitchen physic at her will my father's son had lost his lands and never seen the goodwin sands but thanks to fortune and a nurse whose care depended on my purse i saw my Sorry, but just to draw attention to that. But thanks to fortune and a nurse whose care depended on my purse, uh, Medicare for all, <laughs> had lost his lands and never seen the Goodwin Sands. But thanks to fortune and a nurse whose care depended on my purse, I saw myself in good condition without the help of a physician. At length, the shivering ill relieved, which long my head and heart had grieved. I then began to think with care how I might sell my British ware, that with my freight I might comply, did on my charter party lie. To this intent, with guide before, I tripped it to the eastern shore. While riding near a sandy bay, I met a Quaker, yea and nay, a pious conscientious rogue, as e'er wore bonnet or a brogue, who neither swore nor kept his word, but cheated in the fear of God, and when his debts he would not pay, by light within he ran away. So, got a religious hypocrite. Uh, yeah, uh, just yeah, just 
to elucidate that play on words there like that the light within is this um uh quaker concept where instead of like being moved by doctrine or some sort of written work it's like you're moved by the holy spirit to to act and like a good example is that a quaker service is largely silent like it's silent meditation unless you're moved by the light within to speak and you know any parishioner can get up and say whatever moves them so if you went to like a Quaker meeting in Brooklyn, they would say that like, you know, I don't know that it's ridiculous what Trump's doing or something. That's But um, so what I like that the, the, the writer zeroes in on this is that his inner light happens to tell him to run away from his creditors. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> it's very American. With this lie zealot, soon I struck a bargain for my English truck, a green for 10,000 weight of sotweed good and fit for freight. Brought Orinoco bright and strong, the growth and product of his ground, in cask that should contain complete five hundred of tobacco neat. The contract thus betwixt us made, not well acquainted with the trade, my goods I trusted to the cheat, whose crop was then aboard the fleet, and going to receive my own, I found the bird was newly flown. Cursing this execrable slave, this damn pretended godly knave, on dire revenge and justice bent, I instantly to counsel went, unto an ambidexter quack, who learnedly had got the knack of giving glisters, making pills, of filling bonds, and forging wills. Uh, so yeah, will forging was, or, and this sort of thing, uh, or legal document uh, shenanigans is something we saw uh, in uh, the Cooper uh, Pioneers episode uh, with well, actually James Finmer Cooper's father. Um and uh, it also is true that the uh, justice system in Maryland at this time was kind of this is this isn't entirely an exaggeration. Yeah. Uh, um, and it's also interesting that yes, yeah, so, like in order to um, you know make a living out here, this guy goes from being a sort of quack doctor to a barrister mm-hmm. or like a legal representative, and those are sort of like he, he sort of like. There's some fluidity between those two for him. Yeah. And with a stock of impudence, supplied his want of wit and sense. With looks demure, amazing people, no wiser than a daw in steeple. My anger flushing in my face, I stated the preceding case, and of my money was so lavish that he'd have poisoned half the parish and hanged his father on a tree for such another tempting fee. Smiling, said he, the cause is clear. I'll manage him, you'll need not fear. The case is judged, good sir, but look in Galen. No, in my Lord Cook. I vow to God I was mistook. I'll take out a provincial writ, and trounce him for his knavish wit. Upon my life will win the cause, with all the ease I cure the yaws. Resolved to plague the holy brother, I'll set one rogue to catch another. To try the cause, then fully bent, up to Annapolis I went, a city situate on a plain, where scarce a house will keep out rain. The buildings framed with cypress rare, resembles much our Southwark fair, but stranger here will scarcely meet, with marketplace exchange a street, and if the truth I may report, tis not so large as Tottenham Court. Bit of snobbery, like this is rinky-dink compared to London. Mm-hmm. But stranger here will scarcely meet with marketplace exchange a street, and if the truth I may report, tis not so large as Tottenham Court. 
St. Mary's once was in repute. Now here the judges try the suit, and lawyers twice a year dispute. As oft the bench most gravely meet, some to get drunk and some to eat, a swinging share of the country treat. But as for justice, right or wrong, not one amongst the numerous throng knows what they mean or has the heart to give his verdict on a stranger's part. Now court being called by beat of drum, the judges left their punch and rum. When pettifogger doctor draws his paper force and opens cause, and least I should the better get, bribed quack suppressed his knavish wit. So made upon the downy field, pretends a force and fights to yield. The bypassed court without delay, adjudged my debt in country pay. In pipe staves corn or flesh of boar, where cargo for the English shore. Raging with grief, full speed I ran to join the fleet at Kikatan. Embarked and waiting for a wind, I left this dreadful curse behind. May cannibals transported o'er the sea. Prey upon these slaves as they have done on me. May never merchants trading sails explore this cruel, this inhospitable shore. But left abandoned by the world to starve, may they sustain the fate they well deserve. May they turn savage or as Indians wild from trade, converse, and happiness exiled. Recreant to heaven, may they adore the sun and into pagan superstitious run. For vengeance ripe, may wrath divine then lay those regions waste, where no man's faithful nor woman chaste. End of the Sotweed Factor by Ebenezer Cook. This will come out right on just about the anniversary of its publication. Uh, yeah, well, it says 15 January 1707, but I don't know if it was actually published till 1708. But yeah. Um, uh, a long time, long ass time ago, seventeen seven. But it's interesting that it ends. May they turn savage, or as Indians wild from trade, converse, and happiness exiled. It's funny that just immediately we go to economic warfare. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, fine. You want to be Indians? Be Indians. Uh, we don't need to uh, you know, send our boats here anymore. Of course they did, but yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I have anything uh, left to say about this that uh, I haven't said yet. Do you have any concluding uh, marks on the poem? Yeah, I just think that it's the the poem eludes your grasp in a very impressive way, where it it, it has like a a very kind of wide, unclear target for its satire. It's so obviously satire, but what's not clear is what the target and what what the like what the the program is like who who's the who's the other in this in this poem and it, it's constantly shifting lenses and mm-hmm. in that way it's just like this kind of beautifully american piece in that sense where it's like you're only as good as the next conversation you have and i think you know, there was like there's a lot in this poem about people showing up in a situation and becoming the person who who has to thrive in that situation which may have nothing to do with the previous one and that's a character like in a hallmark that's going to go right through to today. Like I think of like Gatsby is a great one. Like this, like this, the self-made person also means the person that obliterates their past. Or like, if we want to go to like prestige TV, it's like the Don Draper character. Like it's interesting that those are largely characters of drama. And this maybe in my, I mean, from my understanding, maybe one of the first real literary experiences of someone who has to change themselves and become a non-person to, to live in this world. Uh, is rather like it's largely a comedic uh, expression of that idea. 
um, we'll actually have another Sotweed Factor episode uh, in the future, a month or two from now, uh, because the postmodernist author, I guess people call him, John Barth, uh, wrote a book by the same title that's sort of a fictionalized version of this poem, um, following Ebenezer Cook as he tries to write the Marylandiad a poem. He's the a poet laureate of Maryland. Uh, very funny. Uh, have you mm-hmm. gone through much of it? I've gone through a third. I'm, I know it's it for the for the listener. It's quite long, so I want to be able to get ahead of it for our uh, yeah. That's, for the episode that's why it's going to take a while. Um, I'm, I, the paperback here is about eight hundred pages, a little bit shy of eight hundred. So it's a long one. Um, but in the style of uh, it, it reminds me a lot of uh, Mason and Dixon by mm-hmm. Thomas Pinch. I think uh, I think Mason Dixon is I, I like. That's my favorite, one of my favorite books of all time. But this is, I love it. I love the, um, the sort of pro, the the idea here in this book. Um, well, the, so, the shifting perspective I think screams out for a postmodernist interpretation. Right. Yeah. And a lot of the, the events, like the uh, the woman playing cards and stuff, it's it's in that poem. Um, so yeah, we'll talk about that. That's uh, coming up in the future. We're also we've talked we sort of hinted at Bacon's Rebellion, but we're going to get deeper into that in the upcoming episodes. Uh, we have another poem by Ebenezer Cook. The other, it's probably the second most famous. I don't know if I know enough to say that categorically, but uh, he did one on Nathaniel Bacon, uh, Bacon's Rebellion. So we'll talk about that and Bacon's Rebellion. Uh, we also have another when Grace returns. An episode, uh, another one on Afro Ben, her uh, play The Widow Ranter, which is also about Bacon's Rebellion. And then uh, we'll have a special guest uh, I'll be joined by uh, for a Toni Morrison novel, uh, A Mercy, uh, which also is sort of tangentially, in the same, same time frame, uh, has some Bacon's Rebellion stuff in it. Um, so we're going to go heavy Bacon's Rebellion. Uh, also, Michael Brooks will be on the show in the coming weeks discussing the George Orwell essay. Uh, Alex, um, anything else you want to say before we sign off? Um, patreon.com slash literary hangover, uh, become a subscriber today. If you want to keep this, this, uh, show growing, we got some exciting things. Uh, a lot of, a lot of, we want to do some video stuff, frankly, um, mm-hmm. make some good, uh, literature documentaries. Um, so if you want to, any, any amount, I don't. I don't uh, really use the different tiers on Patreon, so if you're you pay whatever you want, that includes people who are already paying. So um, uh, anyone who pays on Patreon gets the um, George Orwell reading series and the bonus content. So uh, Patreon.com/slash Literary Hangover, folks, uh, and we will see you next time.